come get plugged in, come get uh, set up with me. Thank you. Good morning, guys. How about we open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. If you guys are new here, welcome. Glad you guys are here. I'm Brian, one of the pastors. Uh, as you guys are opening up, why don't you all stand as we read Scripture together. John, chapter 10. We've been in a series going through this great gospel. Uh, we took a couple weeks off. We had a guest speaker last week. Or you're going to have a guest speaker next week. I'm actually going to be in Indiana at a conference, Expositors Collective. If you're unfamiliar with it, check it out online. Uh, I'm excited to be able to be part of that. Uh, you guys, one of the speakers, uh, the speaker that you'll have next week is a guy named Nick Billich. Nick's been a part of our church for a long time. They moved away for about a year. Awesome guy, amazing teacher. You guys are going to have a great time next week. He's going to just continue uh, through the Gospel of John, so we're not even going to skip a beat. So right now, we're in John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at this. So here we go. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. And when he has brought out his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in. So Jesus, we commit this time in your hands right now. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our understanding. Uh, God, speak to us. Show us uh, what it is that you want to have us see here this morning. And God, give us power to be able to uh, obey everything that you show us to live by. And God, we entrust our time here together into your hands for the shaping of our hearts, uh, for the opening of our eyes to seeing you, and God, for the transforming of our lives to just look like you in everything that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So as I mentioned, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of John, and we have been taking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, making our way through this great book, and here's where we land today, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. What I want to do real quick, and I'm going to just give a quick little summary of what we just read, and hopefully this will be helpful to kind of give a little bit of context. Um, it should not come as any huge, massive surprise, but chapter 10 basically is a continuation from chapter 9. If you're unfamiliar with chapter 9, we saw this, uh, I don't know, last month sometime around there. There's a guy, he was born blind. Jesus heals this guy happens to be on the Sabbath. Uh, as a result of that, he scandalizes the uh, religious elite. They get angry. They want to kill Jesus. Just, you know, nothing new under the sun. It's kind of what they want to do. Uh, cancel Jesus. He offends them. So that's what ends up happening. They don't kill Jesus. Jesus then kind of moves on. We get John, as John, as he's telling us the story about Jesus, we move to chapter 10, where Jesus begins to have this dialogue with them. And one of the things that he does is he claims to be the good shepherd. We're not going to look too much at the claim of a good shepherd this week. That will be next week. And again, Seriously, don't miss next week. Nick is a fantastic Bible teacher, and I'm, I'm really excited to kind of hear what he has to t teach on that particular passage of the Good Shepherd. But the importance of this, you know, cannot be mis uh, mistaken or missed. Um, the idea of a shepherd was something that was common to the Jewish people. They actually viewed Yahweh God as shepherd. So, you know, Psalm 23, if you're familiar with that. 
one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, kings were oftentimes defined or described, or even uh, religious priests and leaders were defined as shepherds. Uh, their job was to basically take care of the sheep, and yet they oftentimes, repeatedly, did not really do a good job. So Jesus takes upon himself this title, the Good Shepherd. But simultaneously, what he's also doing is he's kind of saying or calling out these other religious elites or these leaders that should have been shepherding the people of God well. He calls them out as basically being charlatans or imposters or thieves. Uh, We get that in the very first movement of the text. But then what we see is that then Jesus kind of defines some of the things that he himself does. So here's a couple things, just in case you missed it. We'll go back and re-look at these things. Now, verse 2, Jesus says that he enters by the gate. Secondly, he says that he calls his people by name or sheep by name. We'll talk a little bit more about what the sheep are and who they are in just a second. Uh, we told that Jesus actually leads the sheep. He leads the sheep. Uh, fourthly, we see that he actually goes before the sheep. So he's not forcing people to go ahead of him and kind of like be the front line of defense. Jesus says, I'll go before. So what you get real quickly is just a snapshot or this profile of Jesus as being deeply engaged, deeply entrenched with his sheep, very connected with him. He's not a remote God. I don't know what your perceptions are of God, but Jesus is a deeply interconnected uh, God, deity, that is very, very well aware of what's happening in the lives of his people. And then the second thing we're told is that the sheep are respondents to what Jesus has done. We're told about them. They hear his voice. So obviously they hear. Uh, just, and then we're told that they follow him. So they, wherever he leads, they go. And then thirdly, we see that they know his voice. The word know there is basically familiarity. They're able to discern between the voice of Jesus and the voice of imposters. So this is what Jesus says. Again, I'm just kind of reading to you what Jesus himself points out. But what I want to do this morning is I want to really kind of dig a little bit deeper into this whole idea of how do we discern or hear God's voice. Before we even jump into that, I think it might be worthwhile to just kind of point out, this is super critical to all of this. And it might be even a moment for you to step back and ask yourself kind of a little bit of the important question, are you one of Jesus' sheep? Do you hear his voice? Do you know what he's calling you to? Or are you lost? Are you trying to figure out life on your own? And again, something for us is to consider that if you are lost, if you are not a sheep, if you are not one that follows Jesus, the fact of the matter is that all of us are prone to follow something. This is why this is so important to Jesus, because his whole point is that we are not as in control of our lives as we tend to think that we are in control of our lives. There's the, the weird reality that we live in today is that we are trained or taught that you get to choose your own reality. You are in control of your fate. You master your own destiny. But the fact is, is that the more you delve into it, we are not as in control of our lives as we tend to think that we are. There are all sorts of factors that are oftentimes at play or influences that are constantly moving and motivating um, public relation campaigns that are constantly vying for your attention or your little bit of understanding about what's happening in the world around you just to draw you in, to suck you in, to buy something, to invest in something, to drop your email here, to give your cell phone there, and now you're locked and loaded into this whole new system. And really, it's an attempt to lead you, to shepherd you. There are false shepherds. Most those voices are benign. They will not destroy you. They will not crush you. They will not kill you. But some are. Have you the ability to discern which ones are life-giving, like Jesus, and which ones are benign and don't really 
not going to necessarily have any major impact upon your life, and which ones are actually deceptive and dubious, and that might actually destroy you. Jesus cares about you, so much so that he describes this little exchange uh, by trying to distinguish between false voices and shepherds that will deceive and destroy and his voice that will actually lead to life and relationship with himself and the Father. So with that being said, I want to really dig a little bit deeper and to ask the question, how do we discern the voice of God? Uh, the subtext to this is how can we, his sheep, hear and know and follow his voice? So again, like the first thing for you to really, like I said, discern, are you one of his sheep? Have you devoted yourself to him? Is the voice of Jesus the exclusive voice that defines and gives wisdom over your life? Are there other voices that are there? And again, what it means to be a Christian, as simple as I can put it, is you've exchanged shepherds from shepherds that are dubious to a shepherd that cares and loves, and we devote the entirety. Now, it's a long journey. Yes, we will stray. Yes, we will mess up. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we will go off, go off track. Yes, we will drift. All of that stuff is all part of the course of life and what it means to be a disciple. We will all find ourselves wandering from time to time. Some of you right now, you are in that path right now. You are a wanderer, but welcome here. Glad you're here. The point of the matter is, is that there's always moments to pause, reflect, turn back. The word for that is repent, turn back to Jesus, trust him again, and then Jesus continues to lead us on. My hope this morning is to just give us some quick, simple tools uh, to really discern how is it that God actually speaks to us? We'll go through a handful of different ways in which Scripture kind of articulates and identifies this. Um, some of these I can actually create if I had time to go really, really deep into this. We can even maybe even make a book out of this and like spend an entire you know, month and a half going through this. So each one of these could actually be a sermon in and of itself. We're not going to do that today. We're just going to kind of quickly overview. If you have more questions on any of these other particular points that are on here, please feel free to ask me afterwards. I'm happy to help point you in any direction that would be beneficial. So let's jump in. Let's ask the big question, how does God speak? Or again, subtext, how can we, his sheep, hear, know, and follow his voice? Okay, number one, let's jump in. Scripture. This seems to be the big E on the eye chart. It's important. One of the things that you'll notice first and foremost, uh, that Jesus was always referencing Scripture. A um, couple things to note with regard to this. I think this is phenomenal when you want to put it in this context. A belief that sees the Bible as a reliable, ancient document, as a primary source of authority. Really, really pay attention to this phrase. A primary source of authority, that's pretty punk rock. Like, if you really want to, like, go counterculture, punk rocker, like, be a Christian, devote your life to Jesus, figure out what Scripture says, and absolutely follow it unwaveringly as it's aligned through Jesus. That's how you're going to be straight up, very distinct from our culture at large. You know, everyone in our culture is like, you need a unique identity. You want a unique identity? Follow Jesus <laughs> implicitly. Follow Jesus. Follow what Scripture has to say. And I promise you, you will stand out, probably like a sore thumb, but you will stand out. Okay, so let's, let's jump in and think about this. Um, the New Testament writers, okay, this is really important to note. The New Testament writers claim that the Bible is not only true, authoritative, but also God-breathed. So let's pause and really think critically about the idea of authority. What is authority? What is authoritativeness? Um, we live in a culture today that wants to place the seat of authority upon yourself. You are the authority. 
You get to choose. You decide your fate. You decide who you're going to be. You decide your life. You decide your lifestyle. You decide your desires, your longings, um, your identity. All of these things are crafted and shaped by your power. The the point that I want to make, that's a heck of a lot of sovereignty and a heck of a lot of burden to place upon an individual. And I promise you, you live under that yoke for any length of time, it will crush you. And some of you are living directly underneath the weight of your own crushing right now. Jesus is here to rescue you. The way he does that is he lifts up the heavy burden. He puts on you his yoke and says, come follow me. I will give you a new life. But you have to orient the sum total of your being around the way of Jesus. We just call this simple discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And all of this is found in Scripture. So, for example, 2 Timothy I think I have the scripture up there. Uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 says this, Paul writing to this guy named Timothy. says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. So the word God breathed, we get the word inspired. Literally what the word means, inspired. God breathed, God spoke, God gave life to this particular text so that it has authority in our lives and so that it makes us wise for salvation. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that you might be complete and equipped for every good work. And really the fact of the matter is it is precisely because the Bible claims authoritativeness over our lives is why it makes it so controversial. And it should make sense, because for many of us, you can read certain passages of the Scripture, and again, many arguments will come back, we'll say, well, what about Leviticus, or what about Old Testament passages that seem to, you know, imply certain things that are, that we would look at and say are grotesque and evil and beastly and inhumane today in today's cultures and standards, and I would say, yes, I agree with those things, they're for sure there, absolutely, but the entirety of the Scripture is a book that always gets to or points out to or finds its full culmination in Jesus. So in other words, everything has to have what we would describe as a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Everything is oriented around Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Everything that we read about. So for example, when you read about stoning or killing someone that sins in the Old Testament, we don't do that in today's church as a practice, by the way, because Jesus put an end to that. Like, like, you look at Jesus, and he says, no, that's, that's not how we do things. The way we do things, especially with those that are enemies or people that have certain ideas or ideological constraints that lead them to certain ways that are different, we don't kill them. We love our enemies. We pray for those that despitefully use us. So Jesus literally reframes everything around himself. And just in case you miss the whole directives that Jesus identifies with, he himself says, I will also, just in case you need this, we all need it, I will embody it for you. So you can see exactly what it looks like. And just, by the way, what it looks like is it looks like a crucified human being. Suffering. In other words, if you're trying to figure out a crucified human being. Suffering, that's the word you're looking for. It looks like suffering. Christians in the West have been lulled into believing that you follow Jesus, you implement the ways of Jesus, your life is going to be suffering free. It's not true. It was never true. It was not even true for Jesus, the very founder of this whole thing. But the point of the matter is, is that all of this is part of what it looks like to follow God. We put God first. We put God's word that is authoritative over our lives. 
in a place where we not just simply approach it as a means of learning, but as a means of authority. So, for example, our culture disciples us, and I use that word carefully, disciples us, it trains us, teaches us. Our culture disciples us to place our authority or the ultimate level of authority upon our inner whisper, our inner voice, our intuition. Now, again, I want to be clear, like, are there occasions where we have ability to intuit certain things? Absolutely. That's not what I'm talking about. If you, you know, are in a job and you just know in your gut being like, this is not the right place for you, that might be wise. It might be stepping into a path of wisdom. But if you navigate the entirety of your life around that little inner voice, I promise you at some point it will fail you. It is a broken GPS system that has flaws. But what Scripture does is it invites us to orient everything in our lives, even that little intuition around what Scripture actually teaches. And just in case that's hard for you, uh, the Bible describes providing mentors and people with ability to, who have a little bit more life experience in your life. We call this the church, where we can interact and ask them to pray for us and ask them to give us wisdom or coaching or guidance or counseling. And that's where Jesus helps us to take that little intuition that we have inside of us to reform it, to shape it, to mold it, to ensure that it aligns with the heart and the will and the mind of God. So, like I said, our culture places oftentimes this. We define our own reality um, even when oftentimes it's even contrary to physical reality. And this is really at the very core of what the transhumanist movement is all about, which transhumanist movement is kind of this umbrella term, which underneath that comes all sorts of other forms and ideas and concepts beneath that, like transgenderism. And it's a way of basically saying, yes, biology says this, but my mind has more knowledge and wisdom over even my own biology. And so I will follow the inner voice that leads me to believe this over that. And as a result of that, at some point, I promise you, this leads to confusion at minimum. And at worst, it leads to just continued senses of dysphoria and pain and hurt and a deep sense of loss. And Jesus wants to come into the mess, in the mess of all of our lives, no matter where they've taken a turn, and says, I, I want to be your shepherd. I want to help guide you back into a place, into a path of life. And that begins, first and foremost, I believe, by reorienting ourselves, our lives around Scripture, the Word with what it has to say. We are in a cultural, epistemological crisis. In other words, the way that we comprehend or understand or discern truth is, has been very problematic for the past many, many years. We would even describe some of, describe this day and age in which we live in as a post-truth era, where nobody really knows what is true anymore. Like, how many of you actually place an entire lot of stock and confidence in what social media tells you as far as news? I certainly don't. <laughs> like, not, not the left-leaning sites, not the right-leaning sites, sometimes not even the independent sites, because I'm always like, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Russell Brand might be smart, but I don't really know. Or Joe Rogan might have some ideas, might have some important and interesting dudes on his podcast. But the point, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know who holds the key to truth, ultimate, bottomless, unfathomable truth. I don't know. We are in an epistemological crisis today. So this is where I would say it's an invitation for us to look at what Scripture actually claims is place confidence in God, who has revealed himself through the word, to begin to follow him. The ancient path of learning wisdom, ultimately, is tethered to hearing God. Hearing God is tethered to the word of God. You cannot separate 
hearing God first and foremost from his word. We're going to go through these other ones pretty quickly. Um, if you want just a really quick background, some simple practices that are oftentimes used and have been, been employed throughout the Christian church, uh, the history of the Christian church, um, there's three of them. Number one is called Lectio Continua. It's basically a Latin term that just describes a continual reading of scripture. So let's say, for example, you start in the book of Genesis, you just keep reading through the book of Genesis day by day, chapter by chapter, until you get to the end of the book of Revelation. So it's a lengthy journey. Some of you guys do it in a year. Some of you guys are super hardcore, like alpha human beings, and you just do it like three months, whatever. But the point that I make is it's just a continual reading of Scripture over and over and over again. Another one is called Lectio Selecta. This is a way of kind of basically taking select passages of Scripture. In fact, this is deeply linked into Jewish tradition. So, for example, when Jesus shows up in a synagogue on a particular Sabbath, and he starts reading out of the book of Isaiah, where in the world did that come from? That came from Lectia Selecta, that there is a regular rhythmic cadence of reading a certain selected group of passages. Jesus shows up on that particular day, just so happens to be that the passage that he reads is, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst, he tells them, and that's what Jesus was probably engaging in, and is this practice of Lectia Selecta. Uh, the last one is called Lectio Divina. Some of you guys are more familiar with this. If you've ever read uh, Lectio 365, I highly recommend checking out that um, that app, it's awesome, it's free, it's something that you can do daily in the morning and also at night. We use it all the time. Sometimes when we're going to bed and we can't go to bed after first round, we'll listen to it three rounds and we try as best as we can to see who gets, falls asleep before the very first round is over. So, but the point of the matter is, it's the idea of just regularly reading scripture, but by not trying to get through it as fast as you can, but by taking small passages of scripture and meditating upon it, thinking upon it, asking God, God, what are you wanting to speak to me through this like little passage right here? How are you trying to show me something of who you are yourself in this little selected passage? And then praying through it. We would call that meditation. Christians should not be freaked out by the word meditation unless meditation is that you're practicing is one that's linked to an Eastern practice. That is not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is thinking upon Scripture, meditating upon it, regurgitating it, if you would, in your mind, in your heart, in your standing, thinking through it over and over again, carefully, critically, prayerfully, meditatively. Um, so that's what we see with regard to that. So last thing I'll say this, reading scripture is not and should not be simply for information and or education, but ultimately for revelation, conversation, and meditation. It's fine to read scripture to learn things, to gain data, get information, it's fine, but that should not be the ultimate end game of reading scripture. It should ultimately be so that we have a better understanding of God and his love and his depth of desire to draw us into relationship with him that then leads us to meditation and love and affection. All right, let's jump on to the next one, prayer. I would also lump into this silence and solitude because prayer is basically a part of this. Um, next slide, I'm gonna show you a little quick uh, quote from Tim Keller. It says this, that prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. Again, I can spend an entire like four-month series on prayer. I'm not um, you're welcome, but we're just going like, to think about prayer. Prayer is an aspect of hearing from God. God wants to speak to us through prayer, especially if we see prayer for what it really is. It's a conversation. We speak, and then we listen. We speak, and we, let's, we listen. We calm. We pause. Someone once described prayer as kind of like the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, uh, like a... Like a um, that's what I'm looking at. A feather. A feather that lands on you. If you're in a rush, if you're hurried, if your body's flowing with adrenaline because your day is just filled with hectic chaos, you will probably not notice that feather on you. But, but if you slow down and you calm yourself, if you 
become more aware of your surroundings and thoughtful, you might be aware of that feather. That's sometimes the way the Holy Spirit is. He's like this feather that gently alights upon us, and that comes through an awareness. We learn, we discern what the Spirit's trying to speak to us. As we calm down, as we slow down in silence and solitude, we pray. And if you have a hard time praying, again, I'm happy to help you guys to consider that. I, like I said, there's a lot more that I can say about this, but I just don't have the time for it. And in fact, if you want a good place to start, I would just simply start with the Lord's Prayer. Be our Father, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Just pray through that. Make that a regular cadence of your life to pray. And as you pray through it, maybe just pray through it the first time. Um, and then just pray through it a second time. But be more thoughtful, prayerful. Our Father. Maybe even ask the question, what does it mean that God is my Father? What does it mean to me that God defines himself to me as a good Father? How, how does that change my heart? How, is, how does his disposition towards me change my disposition towards him? It should, if you understand it rightly, draw you into a deeper relationship with him. So prayer becomes a means of learning and discerning the voice of God. Thirdly, prophecy. Again, this is one of those areas, I would say, in a lot of ways, um, all of them, though they can be abused, prophecy oftentimes gets abused the most. Uh, this is not new. It's been going on even since the day of uh, the early church. Paul actually wrote to the entire the Corinthian community. One specific issue that he had with them is that they were elevating certain people in the church based upon certain giftings that they had. And some of those giftings were prophecy. So dudes that were walking around or gals that were walking around with the ability of prophecy, they would be like, oh my gosh, they're like super, you know, ninja, elite saints that are following Jesus and everything they say must be listened to. But then Paul would say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to everything they have to say. Discern, like, well, first of all, listen to everything they have to say, but discern everything they have to say. Take it back to scripture. Does it align with Jesus? Uh, I heard one guy describe it this way, that there are three things that you can align prophecy around, the ABCs of prophecy engagement. Um, it goes like this. Is that prophecy, that word that was spoken, someone would describe it as a rima word, a word that's here now, present. Prophecy can be life-changing. If you've ever had someone speak a word over you, or they come to you, and again, I think there's crafty ways in which you can do it that are healthy, I think when people walk up to you like, hey, I have a word from God for you, that I, that's problematic to me, to be quite frank with you. You should never do that, and I'll tell you why. Because do you know for sure that is a word from God through you? No, you don't. And if you say yes, you're putting energy on some false premises here. It's better to say, hey, I think I'm sensing something that might be from God, but I want to put out there, and I would love for you to see if it bears witness, or you bear witness to it, or it resonates in your soul. And for you to check it or test it to see if there's any resemblance of what God is already showing you. And so there's three ways in which you can think about this. The ABCs. Number one, is it affirming? Does it bring forth encouragement? Sometimes uh, prophecies, really, they, Paul would describe there for the edifying of the body. In other words, it's supposed to affirm, encourage, lift up people. Number two, does it align with the Bible? Is it biblical? So ABC. Is it affirming? Is it biblical? Does it align with Scripture? If it doesn't align with Scripture, if someone comes to you like, hey, you know what? I feel like the Lord's giving me a word from the Lord that you're supposed to go ahead and sleep with your, like, fiancé. That's okay. Go for it. You love each other. I would say it doesn't align with Scripture, man. Like, Scripture's pretty dang clear. Do not have fornication. Do not have sex before there is a relationship that's been bound or sealed in marriage. That is not from Jesus. I don't care how many stripes this person seems to have on a spiritual level. They are speaking out of line in the heart of God. It can be rejected. It is not from God because it does not align with Scripture. And thirdly, is it Christ-like? Does it lead you to become more like Jesus? This is a really important one. 
does this word, this rima word, this prophetic word, uh, is, is it affirming, is it biblical, and does it lead to everything that Jesus has to say? Again, this is where someone can be like, hey, I feel like the Lord's telling me that you should probably just go slaughter some people, like pretty bad example, but because uh, the Bible talks about slaughtering some bad people, but it does it align with Jesus. No, Jesus never really encouraged people to go out and like do things like that. So at some point, you have to align all of these three things. Do they align with the ABCs, affirming, biblical, Christ-like? I think that becomes a simple test to define or discern whether or not a particular prophetic word is actually from the Lord or not. And this is a way in which we can hear God's voice. Uh, there's been many times I've had people speak words over me. And it's, it's not. Some of them aren't real. Like some of them don't bear testimony to me. And so I just disregard them. But there's another passage where the New Testament describes, do not, dis, uh, um, do not despise prophecies, but hold on to all things. Test all things to make sure that this is really from the Word of God. And there's times that I've had people speak words over me, and they're life-changing for me. They, they're life-giving for me. And I hold on to those things because they are a word from God. There's no other way around it. And this is God speaking in really clear ways through the gift of prophecy. Thirdly, dream, or fourthly, dreams. Dreams is another way. Again, I can spend a whole lot of time talking about this. I'm not. There's a lot of good uh, books to read on this, but the point that I would just leave with you on this is that dreams are deeply rooted throughout the biblical story as a means by which God speaks. You can see people as early as Jacob or Joseph or Daniel uh, that are receiving dreams from God. God speaks to them through these particular dreams. Sometimes these dreams cast a little vision as to what they're supposed to do, a life choice that they're supposed to make. Uh, the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 17 says this, that God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, dot, 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 and your old men will dream dreams. Does that mean that young people can't dream dreams? No. Just for whatever reason, old people are a part of this whole context. So if you're an old dude, being unable to dream dreams, thank Jesus for that. It might be his way of speaking to you. So dreaming dreams can be another means by which Jesus speaks to his people. Lastly, suffering. Suffering is another means or a language by which God can oftentimes use to speak to us. Uh, Psalm chapter 34, verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Um, suffering becomes a really unique occasion where God oftentimes uses the pain, the hardship, the struggles, the challenges of our lives to speak something to us. Uh, one of the most famous passages that I've read before um, here, and I'll just recite it today from The Problem of Pain by uh, author C.S. Lewis. I'll just read the larger one, so just go ahead and pay attention to it. I don't have it up on the screen, so just listen. He says, we can often ignore God in our pleasure. It's a pleasant thing about that. We live in America. We've been wired to believe that one of the benefits, one of the ways in which criteria that you can tell that we are a quote-unquote blessed nation is because how much pleasure we have. But I would maybe potentially switch that around and say, is it possible that our pleasure is actually the means to the destruction of our own souls? Because in pleasure, it's way, way more prone, way more able to disregard the voice of God, way more able to be unfamiliar with his voice and therefore be misguided, misled. Uh, it's in times of pleasure that we oftentimes uh, will lean more towards things that are self-centered, self-focused, as opposed to others-focused. We become an affluent community that is known for our own. I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll just tell you this right now. I don't think, like, back in Viking days, uh, where everybody's fighting and there's bloodshed everywhere, which is kind of a barbaric time that you wouldn't want to live in, I don't think they had a real issue of, like, narcissism where everybody's, like, taking selfies and, like, spending exorbitant hours online looking at themselves 
Why? Because things were different. They did not have affluence. They did not have pleasure. As a result of that, things were hard. Hard times oftentimes created different type of people. But C.S. Lewis would say we oftentimes ignore God in our pleasure. Uh, but past, but, sorry, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse the deaf, a deaf world. There's no doubt pain as God's megaphone can be a terrible instrument, but it gives the only opportunity that the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. It plants the flag of truth in a rebel soul. And I would suggest to you, that's what we need more than ever. We need truth. That's God's word that shapes us, liberates us, sets us free. I want to end on a very personal note that this is real to us. The past three weeks, this final note has been what my wife and I have been clinging to, holding on to. Um, This past Monday, uh, we got a call from Sherry's doctor. She has been diagnosed with breast cancer. And we're, we're in the midst of this right now. We're navigating this, asking the question, what does this look like for us, for our family? How do we tell our girls, which we've had already? How do we communicate this to people that we love and care about in our church? And how do we bring, how do we steward this um, potentially terrifying, anxiety-laden season in a way that honors Jesus, but at the same time clings to the, the truth of God? in the midst of this. Uh, and so the, the fact is, in the midst of this, this is a very real moment for us, that during these days of having to wait and pray and listen for God's voice, um, waiting for whatever the diagnosis was going to be, was, yes, there were days of lots of fear and anxiety. Um, we realize deeply that we want to steward what has been allowed for us to go through in a way that just is righteous. Like, we're committed to that. We don't know what that looks like. There's still a lot of questions that we're still navigating. There is the process of um, treatment and what pathways we're going to take for that. There are the questions of, like, what does this look like for, you know, certain days where I maybe I need to take some time off or whatever that looks like. I don't know. There's a whole lot that we just simply do not know at this particular juncture. We are deeply committed to each other, deeply committed to working through this in a way that honors Jesus and that is committed to hearing God's voice even in the midst of pain and suffering that we find ourselves going through. Um, We are super grateful, both Sherry and I, to those of you that have extended grace and love and kindness and DoorDash coupons, especially DoorDash coupons, it was awesome, thank you. Uh, we're very grateful for that in the prayers. Uh, we're grateful that we've been able to catch this at an early stage, and we're grateful for God already assembling a pretty amazing team of people around us to kind of help us navigate next steps and kind of figure out what the path ahead looks like. So we are right now in a state of big question that we find ourselves asking God over and over again. These two prayers together, we pray. Number one is, God, what do you want us to know in this new landscape? And what do you want us to do? What do you want us to know? What do you want us to do? Those are the two questions. We just find ourselves on repeat through like a daily cadence of just going back to, how do we live according to these things of what you want us to know and what you want us to do. And these are the ways, and I want to finish with this particular passage, and I think 
Paul the Apostle sums this up really well when I'm done. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. I'm not sure if this is up on the screen. It might not be. Um, Paul would say this. Um, as he describes this scenario in his own life where he had seen certain aspects of who God was, um, he describes a hypothetical person, but then he goes on to say, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And there's all sorts of commentary on like what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. No one really knows what the thorn in the flesh is. But all we do know is he goes on to say, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So just as a little phrase, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Anybody have that? Anyone relate to that? There's something in your life that feels like it's a messenger of Satan that's tormenting you. You wake up at three in the morning and you can't think of anything else other than that tormenting thought, that anxiety that's just sitting there, the pain in your body that you can't ignore, the, the, the ache of your own soul just trying to navigate, figure out next steps of your life. Th- these are the types of things that Paul says, this is what was going on with me. And he goes on to say, verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Imagine that. Over and over and over again, a sequence of three times, God, please, begging you. This is Paul the Apostle. Like, this is God's elite, you know, warrior for the kingdom of God. And Paul himself, even his own prayers were not answered in a way that he would have desired. He says, three times I prayed to God to take this thing away from me. He says, but here's what God said to me. Again, pain Suffering oftentimes leads to a way of hearing God's voice like we never have heard before. This is what Paul says. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes on to say in summary, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that in Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And Paul knows that this strength is not on himself. It's on what he's, it's deeply tethered, connected to what he's hearing from God. So all goes back to relationship with the shepherd. Do you know Jesus? Is he the shepherd over your soul? Does he have claim over you? Have you given him claim over you? Guys, this is, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but your life will find some form of shepherd that you will attach yourself to, some sort of idea, ideology, political framework, theological framework, some mystical idea, some sort of philosophy, something. We cannot live our lives apart from meaning. We have to find meaning, or otherwise we just die. Life becomes despairing. And that's one of the reasons that we oftentimes see people, especially over the past three years, more so than ever, more suicides than ever before. Because somehow within this milieu which we live in, this idea of purpose and meaning has collapsed in upon itself. And Jesus comes along and says, that, that's not how I want my people that bear my name, that I've created for my purposes to live. I want to be their shepherd and give them life and to call them by name, and have them follow me, and I will lead them to a place of wholeness. This is all about, really, Jesus the chief shepherd, and you, do you hear his voice? Do you follow him? Do you know this? Are you cultivating practices in your life whereby when Jesus says something, that becomes the very source of life itself, and you reorient every single thing around your life, around Jesus, I realize that is a big ask, 
and a big claim. But that's exactly what the gospel invites us into, the good news that Jesus says, apart from that good news, we are doomed to false shepherds that promise much but could never deliver, never give us what our souls truly long and ache for, but Jesus can. And I'm done. So I want to invite you guys right now to uh, stand with me. I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to wrap it up. I want to invite you guys, if you are here and you need prayer for anything, you'll give you a moment in just a second to come on up to be prayed for. But as we pray, as we finish up, my hope would be for you guys this morning to just know the voice of the shepherd. If you don't know the voice of the shepherd, as I said at the very beginning, my hope would be that today would be the day that you would turn from whatever shepherds that you've been listening to or following or giving yourself to, even if it's that little inner voice shepherd that oftentimes promises much itself but fails to deliver, to turn to the good shepherd who loves you, who lays his life down for the sheep, who gives himself sacrificially for us. That's the hope of the gospel, that God, in spite of our brokenness and our flaws, he has given himself so that we could live. So I'm going to pray for us. Why don't we bow our heads, and we'll wrap it up. So Jesus, right now, we come to you. We confess our need for you. We confess our sin to you. We confess our doubts, our fears, our anxieties, those areas in which we find ourselves just angry, dealing with all sorts of emotions that are just confusing. God, we lay all of these things down at your feet, even desires and longings that we have that have been unfulfilled or unsatisfied or unmet. We lay all of these things down at your feet. And we choose this morning to believe that you are the good shepherd that actually cares for us, that loves us, that has our best interests in mind. No other shepherd ever would claim that. No other shepherd would lay their life down the way that you would do. Every other shepherd demands things. Every other shepherd expects things and delivers little. So Jesus, right now, I pray for our hearts here this morning, that anybody here that's in a place or a state of uh, being lost or wandering or in a place where they have just been defined by confusion, that bring them home, bring them to a place of confidence and trust by trusting you, Jesus as your shepherd. And if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you've been far from God, maybe you were brought up in a Christian context and you've just kind of wandered really far and you've listened to other voices or other shepherds that have lured you, promised you things, but have failed to deliver and have left you with a big tab that you've had to pay. And you feel the weight of that debt the weight of that guilt and that shame and that regret, I want to invite you right now to just before Jesus, confess that to Jesus. In the quietness of your heart, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I lay this down at your feet. I ask you, Jesus, to wash me, to cleanse me, to make me new. The Bible's pretty clear that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, he is king, he is shepherd, chief shepherd, and that God raised him from the dead, we will be free. We will be his disciples. If that was you, welcome to the family. So, so stoked you're here.
God, for the rest of us, as we scatter, empower us so that we live our lives in nearness and proximity to you, Jesus, the chief shepherd, that we would hear your voice, that we would be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that we would learn the things that you want to teach us. So God, thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said. Hey, guys, before we leave, three quick things. Number one, if you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we want to pray for you. I'll be up in the front. We'll have some other people that would be up in the front. We'd love to pray for you. Just like I said, anything. You're sick. You're going through a tough time. Your job sucks. You just need some, some sort of transformation. Your marriage isn't so hot. You, whatever it is, we want to pray for you. Like, we truly believe Jesus wants to help us. So uh, get prayer. Number two, if you have any way of uh, need or wanting to get plugged into our church, especially like what Ben's going to be doing afterward, the volunteer orientation, immediately follow and go into the next room over there. You'll see a group of people. We just leave Ben, and uh, just go check that out. It's usually about half an hour. It's not very lengthy. Uh, we would love to see the Lord kind of provide those last few uh, areas of need. And then lastly, we also, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the service, um, we do we built entire Sunday mornings around various practices, practices of worship, practices of showing hospitality, practices of prayer, practices of listening to Scripture, and then lastly, practices of just generosity. And this is the way in which we engage and contribute to the work that Jesus is doing. So if you have time, treasure, talents, these are ways to contribute. There's never any obligation always we say this, like what our hope would be is that you pray, you seek Jesus, you ask Jesus what and how and where he would want you to contribute and be a part of this church family. Your contributions allow us to be able to do everything we do. So thank you to those of you that give and contribute. Really, truly appreciate it. If you'd like to contribute, these are simple ways in which you can do that as well. Um, Thank you guys. May God bless you. And listen, may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God be yours. God bless you guys.